Thank you, choir. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 17 and uh, hold your spot there. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to take just a moment. I was going to do this at the end of the service, but I want to go ahead and do it now and introduce one who is joining uh, today, uh, Johnny Thompson. Johnny, if you could back towards the back, if you could just stand and give us a good wave. Let's give a nice welcome to Johnny back there in the back. She's... um, joining our church family today and had an opportunity to speak with Jason and share about her own relationship with the Lord, having given her life to Christ and, and uh, already, and the Lord brought her this direction and in, in this area and to our church specifically, and uh, we're grateful for that. She's already found a great circle of friends, ladies around her, and we're excited to have Johnny as part of our church family. Well, we uh, are in the midst of Christmas season, in the midst of a, uh, a series that I started last Sunday uh, it's just going to span three weeks. We'll finish this series out next Sunday. And then as Adam mentioned, really Christmas weekend, it, it's odd that it falls on a Sunday. So we've just got those three services over Christmas weekend, two on Christmas Eve um, evening uh, or afternoon, 4.30, 5.30, and then Christmas Day at 10.30. And you just sort of pick whichever one you want to come to. And, uh, but for right now, we're in the midst of this Christmas series. Started last Sunday, we'll finish it up next Sunday as well. Uh, but one of the things as I was putting together this message that came to mind was uh, an experience from about three weeks ago. We had an event that we took part in. It wasn't our event, but it was called Prayer in the Square. And uh, the emphasis was that churches all over town were notified of this event uh, that would take place downtown. Our city has 22 squares. And uh, the, the hope was to see 22 churches embrace each of those 22 squares. And, and the cool thing was on uh, November 19th, that Saturday morning from 11 to noon, all 22 squares were covered by our church. Our church had one of those squares as well. And it wasn't to have a service. There was no praise music going on. There were no choir singing. There was no message There were no devotionals in any of those squares. It was just simply for the purpose of prayer. No demonstrations, none of that. No calling the news media, hey, show up because we're going to be down there praying. None of that. Uh, It was just 22 of our city squares, all of them, filled with churches that just simply came for that hour to pray. And so we had Ellis Square. And if you're familiar with... um, Ellis Square, uh, it, it's, it's perhaps probably the largest one, I guess, in, in that downtown area. It's right on the edge of City Market and a very, very busy area. Um, when we were choosing which square to be a part of, I was just kind of looking through and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, I, don't, I didn't know that an angel would show up and tell me which square for us to embrace necessarily. So I was just kind of thinking through and praying, you know, which square should we be in? And, uh, and I realized that Ellis Square has a statue there kind of on the city market side, on the western side of the, of the square of Johnny Mercer. And so it was kind of a no-brainer. Our church is 6613 Johnny Mercer Boulevard. There's a Johnny Mercer uh, statue there in the square. Hey, we're going to meet at the Johnny Mercer statue. We're going to pray for that hour. And so we had Ellis Square. And I tell you, during that hour, we had probably about 15 folks that showed up from our church and, uh, and we spent that hour in prayer. And all we did was we met, we circled up near the statue, we, we kind of opened it in prayer. And then everybody was, was free to kind of do however they wanted. Some would sit on city benches there around that square. Others would walk around the square. But over the course of that hour, we would pray for our city. We had kind of a prayer guide that we would go through. But for me, obviously, I mean, I prayed during that time, but I also just observed. It was hard not to observe. And if any of you in the room right now were a part of that, you probably did the same thing that Saturday morning uh, as well. And as I observed, I, I, was, I, I noticed a lot of things I'd seen before. I mean, I was born and raised in Savannah. I'm very familiar with this area and with the downtown area. I had been to Ellis Square many, many times before. But I guess whenever I was there with an intentionality to pray for our city, I was able to see things and observe things that I had not really noticed before. And I was struck by the varieties of people that were in that square. 
people that were passing through, many who were well-dressed, some that had money in their pocket to burn, right? They're there to spend money. They're in the downtown area. Maybe they're tourists. Maybe it's because the holidays were approaching. This was a week before Thanksgiving. And, and so you had those who were kind of the well-to-do. And then you had those that, that were, um, uh, were there because they worked in the downtown area. They're just passing through, and, and, and they've got their mind on other things. They're focused. They've got to get to work, or they're just leaving work, or whatever may be the case. You've got all kinds of things that are going on in that square. There are also... <clears throat> At the same time there, there were some who were part of our city's homeless population also, and I had an opportunity to speak with a couple of them just in conversation, and uh, one of them, uh, her name was April, uh, she was probably, I guess, about my age, 25 or so, and um, <clears throat> just kidding, and so she, she had been in this area for a long time, for years actually, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, about 17, and, uh, and yet she was struggling with a disease that she had been diagnosed with that had made its way into her brain, and she was beginning to lose her eyesight, and she was beginning to be more and more dependent on other people. She did not have a home. The streets were her home. She was homeless, and because of her disease, she was not allowed access to any of the homeless shelters as well. And and in the midst of that conversation, um, it it, it really uh, ultimately gravitated towards the gospel, which I imagine she probably has heard numerous times before. And no, she didn't make a decision that day to necessarily give her life to Jesus. Um, We didn't have a long opportunity to talk about all the ins and outs of her life. However, I was reminded after I left that place of the simple question of, what is it that causes God to even care for us as people to begin with, right? What is it that causes God to even care about any of us? Because at the end of the day, we really bring little to the table, right? Now, we may, think we may think we bring a lot to the table because, after all, we may look at our talents or our gifts or the money in our pockets or the resources we have, our intellect, our skill set, whatever those kind of things, and we may tend to think, you know what, I bring a lot to the table. I know why God has something to do with me because look at what I bring to his kingdom. But at the end of the day, that is not the case. None of us really bring anything of any significance in and of ourselves to the table. And when we ask the question, why would God choose to care about us? In fact, go a step further. How does God even demonstrate his care to us? Well, that's what takes us to Christmas. Because it's at Christmas when we begin to study and read these passages of scripture that many of us have become so familiar with. If we just pause and if we just soak in those passages a little bit more than what we normally do, we realize that God demonstrated his love for us and his care for us and his mercy and his grace most clearly at Christmas, right? And even though that doesn't use that terminology in the Bible, it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus came that he proved to us how much he cares for us and how much he loves us. Last Sunday, we looked at the first message in this little mini Christmas series, and uh, it was titled The Silence of Christmas. And what we looked at was that period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's one of those odd times where I guess I can say I really didn't preach anything that's in the Bible. I preached the, two, the, the, the 400 years of silence. <laughs> There's nothing in the Bible to describe necessarily, right? It's that 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what we looked at last Sunday was the silence of Christmas and how when Malachi closed his mouth and when his book closed in the Old Testament, right, the last book of the Old Testament, there was a 400-year span of time where there was no prophetic voice that, that spoke ultimately the words of God. 400 years of silence. 
And yet what we were reminded of last Sunday was that even though it may have seemed as though God was silent during that 400 years, silent doesn't mean absent and silent doesn't mean inactive. That God was very much present during that time. He was moving. He was putting pieces in place. He was preparing the pathway for the Messiah, for Jesus to come. And at the same time, he was... um, he set for us the example and, the, and, and the, the principle that when we today go through those times of silence in our lives, when it feels as though God is a bazillion miles away, when we pray and it seems like he doesn't hear, whenever our hopes don't come to fruition, whenever we lose that loved one or that job or whatever it is we've hoped for, even in those times today, whenever it seems as though God is so silent, man, he is still, ab- uh, he is still active and he's always present, never absent for those who know him through Jesus. And so we looked at that last Sunday. The silence of Christmas and how when, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, man, he busted through the silence and, and he, he would ring from that point forevermore, right, that he had come to ultimately bring what we're going to focus on today, the salvation of Christmas as well. And so today we're looking at just a simple message. We're going to move through a number of passages of Scripture, many of those passages that you don't necessarily equate with the Christmas story, and yet they tie in, I believe, so well as we look at the message of the the salvation of Christmas. In my home today, if I were to take you to where we live, to our house, I could walk you up to our kitchen sink, and just left of that kitchen sink, there's a device that's plugged into the wall. It's a device that uh, I purchased a number of years ago. You probably have one similar in your house. Maybe it's plugged into a wall. Maybe it's part of another device that you also have in your house. But this device is called a carbon monoxide detector, right? Probably many of you, if not every single one of you where you live, have one of those in your home. And the purpose of that is simply to help alert you in the event that carbon monoxide has, is present at levels that could create danger or maybe even bring it into your life. It's a carbon monoxide detector. What a lot of people don't realize is that carbon monoxide has been called the silent killer. And the reason for that is because if you were to to breathe it, it wouldn't irritate your nose. It wouldn't irritate your throat. There is no smell. There's no color. There's nothing visible that you can see. And when those who ultimately die, and, and hundreds do in our country alone every year as a result of carbon monoxide poisoning, whenever that death comes, it often comes swiftly and it comes without notice. It is the silent killer. On a spiritual level, there is also something that is not equal to, it's even greater than carbon monoxide risks. It is that that the Bible calls sin. And whenever we think about the story of Christmas, we have to also begin to have that uncomfortable conversation about the topic of sin. Because the whole reason that Jesus came was not to just go over the top in showing God for who he is, not to just go over the top in showing and revealing to us who the creator is in this universe, even though he did that so well. Hebrews chapter 1 reminds us of that. But he also came for another purpose, and that is to pay a penalty that he didn't owe, but that we owed. And the Bible describes this thing called sin, which in many ways we could say is also the silent killer. When I remember going back to that, that day three weeks ago in Ellis Square, as we moved around the square and as I was walking around and praying, and sometimes I would just uh, park on a little park bench there and I would pray, that, that as I did that, I remember just um, recognizing, again, as I mentioned earlier, the busyness of people. But if you take that and look at it through a spiritual lens, many of those people, we can assume if the numbers are accurate, that many of them, if not the vast majority of them, don't have a relationship with God. 
And when you look across the landscape of our neighborhoods, of, our, uh, uh, of the workplaces where we work, uh, of our families, and of our world, certainly, what we find is, is that there is this killer called sin that is wreaking havoc in the lives of people that ultimately led to Jesus coming in the first place. The Bible describes the effects of sin very clearly. It says in Romans chapter 3, uh, as Paul is writing this letter to the Roman believers in the church in the city of Rome, he, he tells us in Romans chapter 3 that all of us have sinned outside of the person of Jesus. Jesus, every single one of us. Man, if we were brought before a jury, starting with a guy standing on this platform right now, extending to the, every person in this room, if, if we were to be taken before a grand jury in search of an indictment, of should we be indicted for sin in our lives? Listen, every single one of us would be indicted because it's a part of our lives. If sin was the deep end of the pool, listen, every one of us in this room have looked into that pool labeled sin, and we've kind of maybe looked around this way and that way, and we've dove in, right? We've all dove in, and some have gone deep, really deep, and others just floundered around the surface, but every single one of us have sinned. We've got sin in our lives. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6 that the wages, the payday of that sin is death. And we, we generally love paydays, right? If you work a job, you probably long for payday every Friday or every other Friday or whenever your payday comes. And if that payday doesn't show up, you're probably calling your supervisor, hey, where's my check? It's supposed to be my account or where's my check? It's supposed to be my box, right? We love payday except the, the, to the negative, the payday as well, the wages of our sin is death. And that's why we have cemeteries, that's why we have cancer units, that's why we have funeral homes, that's why we have funerals. And anytime we attend a funeral, it's a, it's a harsh, stark reminder. Not necessarily that that person sinned so much that God just took him out. No, no, no. It's a stark reminder that in this world we live in, it's a fallen world. And the silent killer of sin has infected every single one of us by our own choice and willingness and that there are wages there's a payday for that it's not just physical death right but it's a spiritual death as well it's a separation from the very God who created us who created us to know him and to walk with him and enjoy his his his, his relationship and his hope and his peace right it's the sin that separates us from him so that we don't have a relationship with him in and of ourselves. There had to be an intervention. There had to be something that God would do to reveal himself. And that's what brings us to the beauty of Christmas. Last Sunday, uh, I, I used Luke chapter 1 as our passage that we looked at primarily. And I know you've got your spot in Acts 17, so you don't have to turn over to Luke chapter 1. You can, can read it on the, uh, on the screen behind me if you like. But in Luke chapter 1, we begin to see a glimpse of the salvation of Christmas in the story, really in the words of Zacharias the priest. Now remember, last Sunday we looked at how Zacharias and Elizabeth, his wife, were unable to have children. They were advanced in years. Uh, they would ultimately bear a child, a son. His name would be John. He would be known as John the Baptist in the Scripture. He would pave the way for the Messiah, for Jesus to come. And listen to the words of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. They're here in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 67. And look at how he's looking ahead past his son, really, who's to be born, and ultimately 
or passed his son ultimately to the Messiah. It says, his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, we know that John the Baptist did not bring redemption. He couldn't pay for sins. And so, Zacharias is here looking past the birth of his son, looking to the Messiah, Jesus, who would be born. Verse 69, it says, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth from his holy, of his holy prophets from of old. That what, what Zacharias is doing here, he's saying there is a Messiah, right? God has performed a miracle. Uh, uh, for the first time in 400 years of silence now, God is revealing himself again in prophecy. And Zacharias, the man whose name means the Lord has remembered, is the one that God uses to prophesy that the Messiah is coming. And I'm not talking about down the road. I'm not talking about another few hundred years. Like, his time has come. He, he, he is now, right? He's prophesying of the coming Messiah. And look at how he describes him in verse 78 and verse 79. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise, that's a capital S, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Take, let's go back for a second. Let me take you back to Ellis Square again with the, the hurriedness and the busyness and those who are, who are uh, you know, just up and coming and those who seem to be down and out. And in the midst of it, there's just this lostness. Imagine Jesus standing there in the midst of Ellis Square announcing, uh, or, or, uh, announcing that I'm the sunrise, right? I, I, I've come you know, to bring you new life, to bring a new start. That, that's part of the beauty of that imagery of sunrise. That it's, a, it's a new day. It's a new start. The old is gone. The new has come. This is what Zacharias is saying about the Messiah Jesus to come. He's the sunrise, capital S, who gives a brand new start. He meets you where you are, and, and, and he ultimately is the key to salvation. And it's such an amazing picture. You go back to Matthew chapter 1, and an angel of the Lord ultimately makes a visit. And as he visits, he's announcing, he's announcing Jesus as Savior. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 describes the birth of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 21, this angel of the Lord. Listen to what he says, Matthew 1, 21. He says, she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember, remember how I described sin just a few moments ago, the silent killer? right, that carries wages, that it has infected every one of us. We've all taken part in it. It didn't just come upon us. We jumped into it, right, and, and, and that brings a separation from God. <clears throat> now we have this angel pronouncing at that first Christmas that a Messiah has come. No more silence. No more silence from God. This is now the pronouncement that a Savior, Jesus, would come, <clears throat> not just to reveal who God is, but verse 21, to save his people from their sins. Verse 22, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What a beautiful picture this would be, that God would come. He would save his people from their sins, and it would truly be God with us. The gospel writer John would also would also have commentary about the coming of Jesus. In John chapter 1, listen to what John says in verse 9 and verse 10. 
He says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. There's reference to Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Let's go back to Ellis Square yet again. Imagine Jesus there in the midst of that square with everyone, their busyness and their tasks and their to-do lists and their money to spend. Some who are on the down and out side of it. Imagine Jesus there in the middle announcing himself as the sunrise who has come and virtually everyone, the vast majority, just missing him for who he was. You know, there's a principle here that we see, and I hope you'll jot this down. I hope you'll really give this some serious consideration. The principle is this, that there are people who are far from God still today who miss him, right? This didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. When Jesus is born and he's placed in a manger and, you know, everybody missed him except the shepherds saw him and the wise men, they, 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 they found him right, but the vast majority of people missed him. I mean, that, that, that was the picture, and that's what John said. The world did not know him. Even though this is God who has come, the world didn't know him. Listen, there are still people today who are far from God who miss the fact that Jesus has come to rescue us, and they miss him, and they ultimately miss that rescue as well. That still happens as much today as it did 2,000 years ago. I read a book recently called The Prodigal God, written by um, <clears throat> Tim Keller, and, and it, it unpacks the parable that for many of you, you're familiar with in this, in this room today. I mean, you've read the story of the prodigal son. If you're not familiar with it, or if you need a refresher, the basic parable that Jesus told in Luke 15 is the story of a father who, uh, who had two sons. And uh, the, there was the younger son, there was the older son. Well, the younger son came to him and said, Father, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance. Now, this was uncommon. This was not the norm. This was actually very disrespectful to the father because you didn't come and ask for your inheritance before the father had already passed away. And, and so as Jesus tells this parable, his listeners, the, this Jewish audience, primarily the Pharisees, would have understood the disrespect that was being shown. The, the, this younger son came and said, Dad, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance. And so the father graciously, ultimately, uh, uh, split the inheritance, giving the appropriate portion to the younger son, and we can assume as well to the older son also. And if you know the story, you remember as, uh, as Luke captures the parable there that Jesus shared how the younger son took his... Um, took his share of the inheritance, and he jumped over the fence, right? He took off for the far country, and he went off running with no boundaries, and he ultimately blew all that money on just wild, crazy living, right? Fill in the blank however you want. Luke fills it in a little bit, but you can imagine, fill in that blank however you want. He took his share, this younger son, and he went over the fence, and he took off running to where there was a land with no boundaries, isolated, separated, from the Father. We hear that parable and we typically say, you know what? Yep, that's sin right there. That, that's, that's, the, that's the picture. I get it, Jesus. I read your parable here and, and I'm tracking with you that you're painting a picture of what sin looks like. And he, and he was. And, and that is such a clear picture of what sin looks like. It's just looking at the Father in disrespect and taking what he gives us, right, the blessings of life, and then clearing the fence and leaving the property and living however we want. That is a beautiful picture. As ugly as it is, it's a beautifully accurate picture of what sin looks like. But what Keller points out out of this parable, in this book that he's written, and I had never thought about this, he said, but in a sense what often is missed is the older son, the older brother in this parable. And in fact, in some ways you could say the parable should not really be known as the parable of the prodigal son. It should be better known as the parable of the two sons because Jesus has a message that, that involves both of these sons. One who is alienated from the father because he was so bad. 
and the other who was equally as alienated from the Father because he was so good. If you remember in that parable, Jesus shares in incredible detail the plight of both the younger son and the older son. I'm just going to describe what he says beginning in Luke 15, 25 as he deals with the older son. We often don't give much consideration to the older son. We just overlook him. And oftentimes if someone were to say, hey, can you tell me the parable of the prodigal son? We would, we would rehash the details and we would stop whenever the younger son came home because remember he did. He came to his senses and he said, I got to go back to my father. He rehearsed this speech and he said he was going to come back and say, father, I've sinned. I don't deserve to be your son. Would you just hire me as one of your servants? And, 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 he, and he came back and he had a speech and all he, could, all he could say was just the very beginning and the father father saw him from a distance and he ran out and he greeted him and he hugged him and he threw a coat on him and he put a ring on his finger and he told the servants, he said, kill the fattened calf because we're going to celebrate. I don't know if you're serving fattened calf or not, or not at your Christmas meal, but apparently it was a big deal. He said, kill the fattened calf and, and, and the, the son of mine who was lost is now found. He was gone and now he's home and we're going to celebrate. And that's where we would end the story of the prodigal son. But Jesus didn't end it there. He describes the older son, and he says in verse 25, Now his older son was in the field. We don't have this on the screen. I'm just going to read it. I'm going old school, right? This is a Bible, okay? And, uh, <laughs> and so he says his older son was in the field, and when he came and he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. This is the older son. And he summoned one of the servants, and he began inquiring what these things could be. He's like, what is going on here? And he said to him, the servant said, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, became angry and he was not willing to go in, right? He, was, he, he stayed alienated from the father. And his father came out and he began imploring him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me, and all that's mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he's begun to live, and he was lost, and he's been found. And what we often miss is that in that parable, that both of the sons were equally isolated, separated from the father. One because he had just lived his life without boundaries. That's what we often say sin looks like. But there was another one who missed the father. Do not let this go, go past you. He missed the father because of his own goodness. He trusted that he had done everything he was supposed to do. I've checked all the boxes. Everything you've told me to do, father, I've done for you. And here I am, right? I, I, I'm not getting what I I deserve. And both of them missed the Father until one repented and came home. You know, when we think about that picture of salvation that we see at Christmas and all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, and when we go back to a place like Ellis Square, you tired of going back there yet? There's a picture of the vast majority of people who think my life is okay as I am. Money in my pocket, job at home, retirement in the bank, family around the table, car in the driveway, I'm good to go. Without ever giving a thought about where they stand in the most important 
relationship of all, the relationship with God. And the tragedy of it is that for the vast majority of people in this world, we're measuring ourselves based on our goodness in comparison to other people that we think are worse than us, rather than by the standard of perfection that God requires. You say, Brooks, I don't know that doesn't sound like good news to me because I can't be perfect. It's not good news if a Savior doesn't come. But when a Savior comes to take our place and rescue us, it's the best news of all. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is there in the city of Athens, Greece, not Georgia. Maybe he was wearing red and black, I don't know. All I know is I can't wear this shirt ever again because everybody thinks I'm a tech fan. I had three comments in about 90 seconds this morning when I came in. Can't have that talking about sin. <clears throat> Just kidding. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Paul's in the city of Athens. He's already been run out of Philippi. He was jailed there for sure in the gospel. Kind of a mob scene erupted. He goes to Thessalonica, eventually Berea. More mob scenes, right? For sure in the message of the gospel. Paul eventually gets escorted out of town, <clears throat> out of Berea, and he makes his way alone to the city of Athens. It's in Acts chapter 17, I think this is where I had you hold your spot about three and a half hours ago. Acts chapter 17, this is where we can pick up here, and, and I'm coming towards the close. Only an hour and a half left. In Acts chapter 17, we see Paul there, and he's making his way towards Athens. Look at what it says beginning in verse 15. It says, now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So he's all by himself here in Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. He, he, he's, he's viewing much like that Ellis Square experience. He, he, he's looking over the city of Athens and everywhere he sees, he just sees this city that's incredibly religious but is so incredibly far from God. And he sees all the idols in the city, verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. We can say they would kind of be, you know, from our perspective, they were like the religious people, right? You know, they, they were the ones we would say, boy, they've got it all together, all buttoned up. And then he was also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Those would be the ones we would kind of say, boy, they didn't know God at all. They thought they had it all. You know, they had their own little religion in place and all that. Verse 18, it says, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. The Epicurean philosophers were the one, their belief was that happiness is the goal of life. I mean, literally, they live their life. That The bullseye of my life is supposed to be happiness, and that's how they live. Not a whole lot of boundaries. The Stoic philosophers had this religious belief that God was in everything. It's called pantheism. God could be in this tree. God could be in that mountain. God could be in you. You know, it was just this belief that God is everywhere. God is in us, you know, which isn't what the Bible teaches. God is personal. God is specific. Yes, he is everywhere, but he is not in everything. He is, he is an independent, a God who is independent of his creation. And so Paul, verse 18 here, it says that he is conversing with them. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Look down in verse 19. 
It says, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was this, the, this council that was in charge of the educational emphasis and the religious emphasis in the city of Athens. And so they're saying, we're going to bring him to, to, to speak to this council because this guy is just intriguing to us. So they took him, they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And this is what they did. They just listened to new thoughts and you know, basically um, uh, uh, weighed them on whether or not they were worthy of belief. Verse 24. Or, or I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observed that you were very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So they had all these altars to all these false gods, and in case they missed one, they covered their bases and they had an altar to an unknown God. They wanted to cover all the religious bases. Here's what Paul says, verse 23, he says, Therefore, what you proclaim, or what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, he begins to describe God, the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Paul is basically saying, this God that I'm describing is creator. He's independent of his creation. He sustains his creation. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, he is in charge. Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. It's in verse 30 that Paul begins to then cut to the chase. He's just described that there is one God in creation or in existence who has created, who sustains, right, to whom we're, we're accountable. He's just established all of this. And the understanding there is that this God is in control and he has a plan, but because of our sin, we're separated from him and we need rescue. Look at what Paul then begins to say down in verse 30. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God, this God he just described, is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. In other words, turn from that sin that I just described earlier in this message. Turn from that which has caused so much havoc and, and so much destruction and which has caused so much that we need to repent. We need to turn from it. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, listen to this, through a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul was able to proclaim that there is a creator who made you, from whom you are, you're isolated, you're separated because of your sin. And you will never be good enough to rescue yourself. But the good news is that this God has come for you. And we understand that as coming that first Christmas when Jesus was born, placed in a manger. This was God having come for us. And if it could be demonstrated as though there's this gulf between us, sinful people, and God who is holy and perfect, that that gulf can't be bridged by us. 
if we were to try to leap the distance of that gulf to move from isolation to union with God, right? If we were trying to bridge that gulf of our sin and our own good deeds, we would all fall short. It would be like trying to long jump the Grand Canyon, right? You might get the world record holder, you know, a little over 29 feet, uh, who may get a little further than me in my six and a half feet maybe with a good running start. But at the end, we're all going to end up at the bottom of the canyon because we can't bridge that gap on our own. And that's the way it is spiritually. God is holy and perfect. We're sinful. We're separated. And the only way to bridge that gap is through a bridge named Jesus who came and gave his life so that if we turn from our sin, not jump through a bunch of hoops, not find religion, not get good enough, not have my good outweigh my bad, not put money in a plate, not join a church, not be Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, But if we turn from our sin and place our faith in him, trust in him, just like John 3.16 says, believe in him, will not perish. Our sins will be forgiven, is removed as far as the east is from the west. Our slate will be wiped clean and we'll have not only forgiveness and eternal life that starts now, but lasts forever. You go back to Ellis Square And as I observed that day and I saw the people rushing through their lives, most of whom probably had given little thought to their eternity over to the western side of that that square was was a booth with a false gospel. Shiny literature, well-dressed people, ready to talk and tell what they believe. It doesn't line up with Scripture. But as I observed even more, I looked across that square with all the people. I saw faces of people that I knew from this church who knew Jesus, had a relationship with God, who were like lights in that darkness with the message of the gospel inside. Listen, for all of us here in this place, we either fall into two categories. Either we know God or we don't. If we think we know him because we're good enough, our good deeds don't get us there. If we think we know him because we're religious, religion never got anybody to God. What we need is a relationship. And if you know him because you've given your life to Jesus and have a relationship with him, then you can have the hope and the assurance that Christmas intends to bring. But if you've never given your life to Christ, listen, no better opportunity than today for you to make that decision for yourself, to say, you know what, today, even though I may be a good person and my good outweighs my bad, I'm still a sinner in need of forgiveness. Today, as an act of my will, I'm going to choose to lay down my sin and invite Jesus to forgive and to take over. And that's a decision that only you can make for yourself. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Christian, if you've given your life to Christ today, hey, why don't you take a moment right now just to thank God to thank God for providing rescue for you. Thank God for, for that first Christmas when Jesus came for you. If he didn't come, we're in trouble for all of eternity. But he demonstrated his love and he demonstrated his grace. And not only that, he also paid the price for us to have our sin forgiven. And if we think we're good enough as people to, to have a relationship with God and, and to spend forever in heaven just because of who we are, listen, we... We severely discredit God and His holiness. We don't deserve that. But it's when we recognize our sin and when we look deeply and we see the beauty of the picture, the true story of Christmas, that Jesus, God, came for us 
And when we recognize our sin and we call on him to forgive us and to take over, that's exactly what he does because that's exactly why he came. To save people just like us who may in some ways seem to have it all together. In other ways, it seems as though we're just in the, we're in the ditch. But when it's all said and done, we need a Savior just like everyone else. And he'll do it. He'll save you if you invite Jesus to do that, to forgive and take over. So, God, we thank you this morning that that's a decision that can be made on any seat in this room. We don't have to have a pastor. We don't have to have a priest. We don't have to be in a church. Lord, at any time we can choose when we're ready to lay down our sin and invite you, Jesus, to forgive us and to save us. And you'll do it. It only takes that once to call on you. And after that, we begin to follow you. But, God, we thank you that you came, that you came in the perfect timing and that you came for us. You came for the world. God, may we know you, and for any of this morning who've never given their lives to Christ, right where they sit today, may they make that choice, give their lives to Jesus. And God, for those of us who have, may we follow you with a heart that beats passionately for you. And may we see ourselves as lights in this world, not because of who we are, but because of who we know. Give us boldness to share that message, we pray. And God, may you be seen through the lives we live this Christmas and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray.